Some of the best science fiction involves time travel. Um, as just one example among many, consider the very popular, uh, and I think very good, Back to the Future series of movies, uh, in the first of which uh, Marty McFly goes back in time in a, De in a DeLorean um, and tries, to, you know, he ends up kind of messing up uh, the future and he risks ceasing to exist. It's, it's, a, it's just a fun story. Um, and, and that's just one of many, many examples of really fascinating and enjoyable science fiction that features the concept of time travel. But the concept of time travel will appear to many Christians equally bizarre, just as bizarre and fanciful as my view of so-called of the so-called soul. Um, in a previous episode of this show, I introduced my view, that of Christian non-reductive physicalism, and this strikes many Christians as every bit as bizarre, fanciful, and indeed as implausible as time travel. Well, what happens if we try to use the first concept, that of time travel, to explain what may be the strongest objection to um, the concept of Christian physicalism? Buckle up, because in this episode, we're going to get a little weird. Welcome to The Apologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of The Apologetics. My name is Chris Date. Please do give me a uh, thumbs up, um, some indication in the chat that you can see and hear me clearly. I'd very much appreciate that. Um, also, I want to say something that I don't think I often say at the beginning of this show. I do often at the beginning of... Uh, thank you, Susan, for, for giving me the thumbs up. I appreciate that. Um, I, I do mention this kind of thing at the beginning of Rethinking Hell Live, the show I do on alternating Mondays, uh, but I don't think I usually do on this show. Namely, well, two things. First of all, I would be super grateful if you would... Uh, and, and you don't have to do this right now. You can wait until after the video to see if you enjoyed it. But if you do turn out to have enjoyed it, I'd appreciate you clicking the like button, uh, you know, the thumbs up icon or whatever on this video. And also um, consider subscribing to my channel. I'm still, you know, fairly new. Uh, this is episode 19. Um, not a whole lot of content, but it is growing. And I think I've got some exciting guests coming up in the not too distant future. So uh, you subscribing to the channel would be very much appreciated and clicking that notifications bell because the likes, the subscriptions, and those notifications, um, they all uh, help my channel and my content to get more visibility across YouTube and, you know, partner networks or, or, or whatever. So I'd appreciate that. Um, and the other thing that I probably have never mentioned on this show is that I... Um, have I don't think I've ever requested any sort of donations, and I'm still not going to request them. This is a, sh a passion project of mine. This, this show, the apologetics, it's it's not the same as rethinking hell, well, where we're you know leading a movement. Um, this is just my own personal thing, but. I did recently, I think it was just yesterday or maybe the day before, received a $120 donation from a longtime fan, uh, viewer, listener, etc. of The Apologetics and Rethinking Hell, and it, w it was incredibly... Um, 
touching. I very much appreciated it. And it was also kind of timely as my wife and I are coming up on our 21st um, anniversary, our marriage anniversary, uh, just in a few weeks. And that $120 compared with a little bit of additional funding I've, I've got from somewhere else, um, that's going to help me to take my wife out, maybe, you know, maybe spend a, a night at a nice fancy hotel or go somewhere for the weekend. I don't know. Um, that's going to help us to make our anniversary a little bit more special. And so to, to the person, and you know who it is, obviously, that made that donation, I thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. And if anybody else of you would like to make a donation to my ministry specifically, I, will, I won't ask you for it. I'm not trying to pressure you. I, I'm perfectly fine to continue doing this on my own funding and, and everything. But if you do like the content and want to um, support what I'm doing, and if you'd like to contribute to my wife's and my anniversary uh, celebration that we'll have here in a few weeks, um, you can just use PayPal to make a payment to the email address on your screen, theapologetics at hotmail.com. Um, and uh, whatever you give me, unless you say otherwise, I'll, I'll put toward our anniversary celebration. Um, and whatever's left over from that, uh, you know, we'll go into purchasing materials or continuing to maintain my website, whatever. Anyway, so so all that without all of the way, I, I don't want to belabor those points anymore. Um, we're, I want to before I jump into the material I'm going to be presenting today. I want to explain why I'm about to do what I'm about to do, namely get really weird, weirder than I think I've ever done in any show uh, I've ever done in any venue. Um, and I want to make clear that what I'm about, what I'm going to be proposing in the content I'm about to be presenting is not something that I necessarily believe to be true. It's not something I'm teaching you, those of you who are watching this live or after it's been archived into the channel, I'm not trying to teach this to you as if it's what I think and what you should think or anything like that. Um, and, and I'm honestly not even all that confident that what I'm going to be presenting in this um, presentation will hold up under scrutiny. But the reason why I'm about to, or the, the reason why I'm going to be presenting the material I am, well, I suppose there are a few reasons. One of which is um, I've been struggling to think of what topic to do in this episode today. But at the same time, I have been thinking a whole lot uh, over the course of the past several weeks about this particular topic, uh, physicalism and, and identity, stuff that will be I'll be explaining at further length here in a few minutes. Um, and so I figure, so, so there was that, uh, and it just sort of lent itself to just in, in, you know, taking a break from communicating what I believe to be true and instead just sort of communicate some speculating, some speculation I'm doing. Um, there, there's, I, I think it's a good time to do that now because I've got some good episodes lined up in the near future that I'll be talking to you about in a moment. But there's another reason, which is that, um, this is not a conversation that I find myself feeling very safe having with many of the people that are have shown an interest having it with me. Um, specifically, dualists who object to physicalism. Um, my experience has been that most dualists who object to physicalism on the grounds of identity, which again I will be explaining in the course of this presentation, um, they approach uh, me in conversation on this topic with what I find to be a very triumphalist, very um, insistent, adamant, certain uh, attitude, um, one that is wholly, uh, wholly focused 
on proving that I am wrong and that my belief in physicalism is is uh, can't be grounded, is 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 unfounded, can't be logically consistent with other Christian essentials. Um, they're more they're focused on that. Uh, rather than on exploring the topic together and seeing if we can uncover um, thoughts, uh, ideas, possible solutions to the problem that have yet to be uncovered. Um, you know, I, I was recently interviewed on my friend and colleague at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, uh, my, my friend's show, Tim Stratton. He's, his show is Free Thinking Ministries, and he recently interviewed me on his show. And I told him in the course of that um, interview that one of the, every, it seems like every single day I become more and more convicted that um, what we Christians who disagree on a variety of topics should be doing in conversation on this topic and other, and other like ones is not trying to prove one's own view right and one's opponent's view wrong. Uh, I think there's legitimacy in debate for doing that. But in conversation, wouldn't it make more sense if two Christians who hold to different views on a non-essential of the faith, when they, when they got together to discuss an issue like this, wouldn't it be better if what they instead tried to do was see what merits there may in fact be in each other's views and try to see if perhaps the truth is some combination of aspects of both views. In other words, a truth finding and uncovering um, process and endeavor. It seems to me that that's what um, conversations on these secondary issues ought to be. But for the most part, dualists, when they challenge me on physicalism, they don't seem, seem, I want to stress that, my, it's, it's a subjective impression, but the subjective impression I have is that most dualists, when they object to my physicalism and they, and they want to discuss those objections with me, their approach is, here are the reasons why you, you are wrong, and it's all at once, they just sort of shotgun blast it all out there, and I am never given any, you know, any real time to uh, talk and think through possible solutions that are then met with genuine curiosity and trying to think through whether or not what I'm proposing may in fact go a, go some distance in answering the objection. Um, and, and, and so I just have not been able to, I haven't felt safe, comfortable discussing um, what I'm about to be discussing with dualists because they just don't seem to be interested in finding truth. They seem insistent upon them having found the truth and just teaching dumb, philosophically untrained little old me why I'm wrong. So uh, what I have decided I want to do is formulate my thoughts as best as I can in what limited time I had to before this ep episode and put them out there not as what I believe to be true but as what I'm arguing might be uh, an, a, 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 the beginning at least of a plausible solution to the problem. I'm very interested in my dualist brothers and sisters in Christ um, showing me where the solution I'm about to propose might break down. I'd love to have that conversation but since my but since they seem typically unwilling to have a dialogue on it in which we're trying to uncover the truth of the matter regardless of to what extent it aligns with my view or theirs and instead seem insistent upon just proving my view wrong and you 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 physicalists are are illogical and and blah 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 and, and here's why because of that um i i just i just don't think that i'm i, I can 
right now have that conversation, at least not with any with most of the duelists that have tried engaging me on that topic. Now, this could be my own insecurities. You know, it may it, again, it's a purely subjective impression, but it is nevertheless the impression I get, and I just didn't want to keep doing that. So I'm gonna. Th I've formulated some thoughts. They're still very inchoate. Uh, inchoate, I N C H O A T, means underdeveloped, sort of fledgling. It's it's. They're still developing to be done. Um, and I've been able to formulate it. I, I, I there's still a lot more formulating to do, thinking through it to go uh, to do. And uh, honestly, I wish I'd had more time to put the material together that I'm going to be presenting. Um, uh, and, and so even some of the thoughts I have uh, aren't I'm not going to present to you today because I've yet to have the time to present to prepare slides that present it in a helpful way. So what what I'm about to do is get weird and speculative. I'm just thinking out loud, albeit with having formulated some of my thoughts in advance. And I just want to start a conversation. And if it's not a conversation my duelist brothers and sisters in Christ can have without trying to shoot each other down, or you know, try to shoot me down and shoot physicalism down, and, and not, and not, and if they're unable to treat a conversation as a truth-finding endeavor, well, then at least this will give me the opportunity to get my thoughts out there, and then I'll be interested in seeing what sort of comments I get, and then I'll just take those comments and consider them on my own time and not engage in these conversations with people who just can't seem to handle a, a truth-finding endeavor, and it's all about proving each other wrong. Okay, so that's what we're, that's what's going to happen today. And I, and I give that very lengthy preface to all of this because I, <laughs> there are going to be people, possibly even in the chat right now, who, you know, just react to this as if I'm being um, uh, illogical and, and there's just all sorts of problems with my thing and they're going to, um, they're going to say I, I, I'm teaching people something that, that uh, is just foolish. And, and I want to make clear, I'm not teaching my solution here. I do want to teach what I think is the alleged problem. But what I'm purporting to be a possible solution is not something I'm trying to teach you. I'm just thinking out loud and I'm interested in seeing what sort of thoughts I get in response. So, and no, the wolves, it's not duelists are toxic, but it is that certain duelists, the ones that have engaged me on this topic in conversation, um, seem so confident that they have sufficiently thought through all the issues that they're not really considering what I have to say. They're just immediately going, they're immediately trying to identify what holes must exist in it. Um, you could call that toxic if you want. I don't. But even if you do, it's only some dualists. It's not all. And we physicalists can just as easily be uh, just as toxic. Okay, now, before I dive into the material I'm going to present, I do want to tell you what the upcoming episodes of The Apologetics will be. Two weeks from today, Lord willing, will be an interview with my friend John Peckham. He recently published a book. Oh, it's actually right here next to me. He published this book, Divine Attributes, Knowing the Covenantal God of Scripture. And uh, he's a friend of mine, and unbeknownst to me, he told his publisher um, to send a copy to me um, for you know to to read and to consider interviewing him about or promoting or, or whatever. And I was just incredibly touched and honored. So I reached out to Dr. Peckham and um, invited him to come on my show, and he graciously agreed. Uh, it will be a pre-recorded interview because our schedules didn't line up, but. Um, 
provided we're able to conduct that interview between now and two weeks from now. In two weeks from now, you will uh, hear me interview, watch me interview uh, John Peckham on his book, The Divine Attributes, and, and we'll talk about um, some of the things that he talks about in that topic or in that book and and um maybe talk about where his approach to the divine attributes might be different uh from um, ones that you may be more familiar with so that's in two weeks now two weeks after that um i am extremely excited to be able to announce what i'm about to announce but it is only tentative i'm waiting on sort of final confirmation but i have gotten confirmation from my forthcoming guests um uh assistant one of his assistants uh has has tentatively penciled four weeks from today on that guest's calendar and that guest is um stephen meyer now maybe this isn't as big of a deal to you as it is to me but i have been following the work of stephen meyer almost since i became a christian 20 years ago very early on after that, I discovered the intelligent design movement, uh, which includes the work of Stephen Meyer and countless others. I've read his book, uh, The um, you know Signature in the Cell. I don't think I ever read Darwin's Doubt, but I am in the process of reading uh, the God or the Return of the God Hypothesis, uh, which is his latest book. And um, tentatively, as I said, his assistant has put down four weeks from today, May May thirty first, on Dr. Meyer's calendar. Um, and if that goes as planned, then um, live, you guys will be able to watch me interview Dr. Meyer on uh, The Return of the God Hypothesis as his book is titled. So I hope that you'll check that out. I'm really excited about it. Be praying it happens. Um, he's just, his assistant is waiting on final confirmation that the day and time works with Dr. Meyer's schedule, um, but it appears to. So I, I, I'm really hopeful and optimistic that this will happen. So that's what's coming up in... Um, in two weeks from today and four weeks from today. Uh, now, I want to introduce what I'm about to offer um, by talking about how mere possibilities can be defeaters to an argument or to an objection. Um, in in John Frame's systematic theology, he lays out the uh, he lays out a syllogism representing the uh, what what philosophers often call the logical problem of evil. This is not to be confused with the emotional or um, or probabilistic problem of evil. It's a different beast, albeit related. No, this is the logical problem of evil, and according to this logical problem of evil, number one, if God is omnipotent he is able to prevent evil. Number two, if God is good, he wants to prevent evil. Number three, evil exists. Number four, therefore, either God is not omnipotent or he is not good. That's, in a nutshell, the logical problem of evil. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring it up because as John Feinberg explains in his, um, one of his, uh, I think this is a book in one of his, uh, it's one volume in a series comprising his systematic theology. This entry is called No One Like Him. Um, he, John Feinberg writes that this problem doesn't mean, this alleged problem, doesn't mean that there may be a way to reconcile the propositions, but we just don't know it yet. And it also doesn't even mean that God knows how to reconcile the propositions and we don't. In other words, this isn't an issue of epistemology, of, of not knowing what the solution might be. Rather, the objection, the logical problem of evil, is the claim that there is no possible way 
that both propositions can both be true. Number one, that God is omnipotent, and number two, or omnipotent and omnibenevolent, and number two, that evil exists. Those two things cannot possibly be um, logically consistent. That is a high bar to pass, and as Feinberg goes on to explain, all one needs to do to answer the logical problem of evil is to offer a possible way to make God's omnipotence and omnibenevolence logically compatible or consistent with the reality of evil. Now, granted, it's hopeful that theists can propose plausible, not just possible, but plausible explanations of how their doctrines harmonize those things, but all that's required in order to defeat the, ob the, the, the objection, to defeat the argument, is to offer a possible exception. If uh, a possible explanation, sorry, if there is even one possible explanation, there may be countless others we've yet to think of. And so even if the, uh, the, the proposed solution isn't in fact the right one, the fact that it's a possible one means that there may be another one as well. And so the logical problem is uh, negated, nullified. That's what I want to try and do in the presentation today. Anthropolo anthropological dualists contend that physicalism and resurrection are logically incompatible, and we'll talk about why. In other words, if physicalism is true, the belief that I hold concerning human persons, if physicalism is true, then resurrection is impossible. But if the dead will be resurrected, physicalism is impossible. And of course, as a Christian, I believe in bodily resurrection. If one does not believe in bodily resurrection, they are not a Christian, much as they may claim to be. So I am absolutely dogmatically committed to the fact that the dead will be resurrected, and the anthropological dualist will claim that therefore physicalism, I must accept that physicalism is impossible. Now, what this means is that answering the argument only requires a physicalist like me to offer a single possible solution. The actual solution to the problem may turn out to be quite different, both from the solution I've proposed and the solution that any other physicalist proposes. There may still be many other possible solutions. All we have to do is identify one, and that defeats the argument, even if the solution that we propose isn't the right one. So what I'm going to do today is propose a possible solution that I don't actually think is the real one. And what's more, as I've already said, the possible solution that I'm going to introduce is inchoate, underdeveloped, not fully formed. There's more thinking here to do, and my hope is that dualists who think they have found a flaw in the solution I proposed will stick to the data I proposed thus far, um, and then we can build together on it and, and see if there's even a foundation to build upon. We'll find out together. Now, for those of you who don't know some of the terminology I'm talking about, I'd encourage you to go back and watch episode 16 of The Apologetics. Um, I titled that episode, Into Your Hands I Commit My Spirit, An Introduction to Christian Physicalism. In that episode, I explained that when we talk about anthropology, we're talking about a science or study of man. Uh, anthropology comes from the Greek word anthropos, meaning human. So when we say the science or study of man, as Alan Cairns puts it in his dictionary of theological terms, we don't mean maleness, we're talking about humanity. All right? And philosophy of mind is one category of anthropology. Philosophy of mind is reflection on the nature of mental phenomena, and especially on the relation of the mind to the body and to the rest of the physical world. 
So what we're talking about today, for those of you who I'm just trying to catch people up that may not have, you know, be super into this kind of stuff like I am. Um, we're, we're talking about anthropology today and we're talking about a category of anthropology called philosophy of mind. Um, and we, typically this catches out in terms of the debate between monism and dualism. In that episode 16, I explained that the monism versus dualism debate is a debate over how many kinds of substances human beings are composed of. Monism means one kind of substance. Dualism means two kinds of substances. Now, I went on in episode 16 to say that one kind of substance is material. Material substances, I said, are composed of matter, and I offered the example of a human body and the properties of that matter. It's energy, arrangement, whatever. But there are a couple of different ways in which I no longer want to uh, explain it that way, to, cat, to, to, to distinguish between kinds of substances that way. Instead, and I think this is the move in the right direction, as even my, I suspect even my own fellow physicalists would agree, the kind of substance I'm focusing here on is not material or matter, material substances, but rather physical ones. This is an important uh, distinction because physical substances are composed of matter or energy. Um, a material substance would be something made of matter, like a radio transmitter or a human body and brain. But an, but a, but an energy, a substance of physical energy would be something like electromagnetic radiation and like the brain's electromagnetic field. Um, the, the famous uh, uh, equation that I, th if I'm remembering correctly, is part of Einstein's Einstein's theory of general relativity is that uh, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Energy and mass are related to one another, but they are distinct from one another. Um, and so a physical substance could either be composed of matter or of energy. So that's what I want to suggest are uh, physical substances. The other kind of substance I had earlier said in, in episode 16 would be immaterial substances. And I said that these exist beyond the material world. And so I offered the example of spirit, um, heaven, and abstract concepts or ideas. But as was the case with the previous kind of substance, I want to be more precise this time around and say that the distinction is not between material and immaterial substances, but rather between physical and non-physical substances. So if I'm right, and by the way, I'm not closely following the chat, so you guys can pick me apart all you want. I'll, I'll go back and review them over the course, um, or maybe I won't. Maybe I'll just watch for po uh, comments that are actually posted on the video rather than in the live chat. Uh, but either way, I'm not, I don't have the ability to get distracted by those, by the chat right now and then resume where I'm at. So you guys chat to your heart's content if you want. But it seems to me that the distinction between kinds of substances in the monism dualism debate are not between material is not between material and immaterial substances but to be between physical and non-physical substances and whereas physical substance substances are composed of matter or energy a non-physical substance would be something that exists beyond the physical world which would include spirit heaven abstract concepts and ideas that would be my contention at this point all right so going back to episode 16 i suggested that in dualism a human being is composed of a material substance, or sorry, uh, material kinds of substances and immaterial kinds of substances. But continuing with our trend, I'm going to be more precise this time around and instead say that the that, that dualism posits that um, 
human beings are composed of physical kinds of substances and non-physical kinds of substances. Now, the most popular, I suspect, both in the present and historically, the most popular form of dualism would be dichotomism. Dichotomists posit a dichotomist view of human nature, that the kind of physical substance that makes up a human being is the body, whereas the non-physical kind of substance that composes a human being is the soul, which is often thought to be synonymous with spirit. But trichotomists are also dualists, and this is often misunderstood. The reason that they're still that they're dualists is because they believe that a human being is comp composed of two kinds of substances: physical, namely the body, and non-physical. But instead of saying that only that, that the only non-physical substance comprising a person is soul, a trichotomist says that also comprising a human person is spirit. And, you know, how they cash that out is, is another thing. I, I think trichotomism is uh, really out there and foolish, but that's not really the point here. Now, monism, I explained in episode 16 that idealists are one kind of monist, but that's not the kind of monist I am. I am a physicalist monist, meaning that I think a human being is composed only of physical substances. All right, And I explained in episode 16 that I am what's called a non-reductive physicalist, meaning that I, unlike reductive physicalists, do not think that mental states are reducible or identical to brain states. In my view, or at least the way I put it at the time, was that the mind is a property function or some other aspect of the living brain. And I'm still inclined to think that. But I'm beginning to think that what it means to be some uh, aspect of the living brain is, is a little bit up in the air. And frankly, I think that if you, I think the field of neuroscience, the, everybody in the field of neuroscience would, would be forced to agree that the, the field does not really yet understand the relationship between mind and brain. Many of them think they do, but as you'll discover, the debate is far from over. So, this is where we left with episode 16. Now, why is this, what is the problem that dualists allege is faced by this view? Well, it goes something like this. This is my own formulation of the objection. Um, I'm trying to steel man it, so I hope I do a good enough job. But basically, m my formulation of the objection would go like this. If humans are solely physical, and remember, I just affirmed I think they are, then humans eventually cease to exist as such after death. Meaning they eventually cease to exist as humans at some point after death. Um, and, and this is really indisputable. I mean, um, the body is, you know, decomposes after death. And, and as you'll see, um, as, we, as we continue through the course of this, there really is no way to to say that in time, the physical substances that compose a human being continue to exist as such after death. Eventually, they, they do cease to be, it seems to me. And so, a person allegedly resurrected beyond that point, that point after death, beyond which the human has ceased to exist as such, a person allegedly resurrected beyond that point would be, at best, an identical clone, but not the same person who had died. This, I think, is, in a nutshell, 
um, the the objection to my view. Let me try to um, explain why this is thought to be a problem more visually for those of you who who might better understand it when presented in a visual form like this. Let's say you've got a timeline, um, and there is one here before you depicted on the screen. And let's say that this represents time X, and we've got a ball A at time X. Now let's fast forward to time Z, and let's say we see two balls that appear to be identical to one another and identical to ball A. And let's say we want to ask the question, which of these, if either of them, is ball A? Well, when it comes to something simple like a ball, uh, an inorganic, inanimate, physical thing like a ball, this is actually fairly easy. The matter constituting the ball at time x is the very same matter constituting the ball at time z. Um, the, the atoms in a ball are not being replaced by other atoms, if I'm not mistaken. Um, even if the atoms are and and the individual subatomic particles, even if all of that is constantly moving within the object that we call the ball, nevertheless, there's no different matter coming in and taking its place. So, uh, so it seems to me that in a case in the case of a simple and by simple I don't mean in the philosophical sense. I mean uh, uh, an ordinary physical inanimate inner object like physical object like a ball. We could say that it has, over time, something we might call material identity. I've made up that term. I don't know if anybody uses it, but it seems to make sense for what I'm describing. The, re the kind of identity the ball has at time X and continues to have at time Z, and throughout the entire intervening time between times X and Z, that kind of identity is material identity. The matter that composes ball A remains the matter that, the matter that composes ball A all the way until time Z and beyond. And the other ball that just appears identical, we, it does not, it is not composed of the very same matter and so is not the very same ball. And this is something you see, well, I mean, we could get into the ship Theseus and uh, 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 George Washington's hatchet. And, you know, there are all sorts of analogies that unpack this in greater detail. But the point is, if the matter that made up the physical object at one point is the same matter that makes it up at a second point, I think we can say that it's got material identity. But here's the problem. The matter that, co that, con that constitutes a human body is constantly being replaced. Now, we've very often heard the claim that your cells replace, uh, are replaced by your body every seven years. That's uh, misleading. The reality is that while some of your body parts cells are entirely replaced over time very frequently, um, there are some cells in the body that once, once they develop, they never disappear, namely neurons. If I'm not mistaken, neurons are extremely long-lived. Um, they don't regenerate, they, they aren't replaced like skin and other cells in your body. And so, but... Even long-lived brain cells, even long-lived neurons, are constantly replacing their constituent matter. That's an important distinction. Even though the cell itself remains from the point that it develops all the way until death and decomposition, the individual atoms and molecule, molecules, proteins that comprise the neuron, um, those are replaced. So even the matter that makes up very long-lived brain cells appear to be 
um, constantly replaced. So humans can't, logically can't, exhibit material identity over time, even while alive. Because at some point in the future, every single particle of matter that constitutes my body now will have been replaced by different matter. So I can't have material identity, using the phrase that I came up with myself, material identity. There's probably a better term for it, and people in the chat could probably say so. So let's go back to my graph, but instead of balls, let's talk about humans. How? Let's say we've got human A at time X, and then at some future time Z, we have two humans that appear identical to one another and, and identical to human A. They're not made up of the same matter, but they appear identical. The matter they are made up of is is identical. Its, its form is completely identical to the form of the matter at time x. Um, and let's say that the uh, both humans have the exact exact same mental mental properties, mental states, all the same thoughts, feelings, emotions, qualia, which is a philosophical word you can look up. All of that. How would we know if or which, if either of them, is indeed human A? Neither candidate, as we've already talked about, is made up of the same matter as human A was at time X. And if the two candidates are identical in material form, the composition of its matter, the shape, if you will, and if they have identical mental states, then either candidate could be human A or an identical clone. And so it seems to be, there seems to be no possible difference between these two candidates at time Z in which identity could subsist and thereby ground continuity of identity over time. We've already talked about the only two possible properties of these two candidates that are discernible. The form of their matter and their the qualia or their mental quality their mental properties but those things could be identical composed of different matter not and then obviously not the same matter as person as human a when he died so it seems that there is no possible difference that could possibly ground a continuity a continuity of identity between time x and time z that it seems to me is why see i used to think that this was a problem mostly of epistemology that the problem was just we don't know how to tell which of these two candidates is in fact human a resurrected but that's not the problem what i'm trying to demonstrate however imperfectly is that the problem is that there is no plausible um there's nothing more that we haven't discussed, that we haven't brought into the equation that could possibly differentiate between human A and human, or the, these two candidates and, and, and identify one of them as human A. There's just no possible way. That, uh, it seems to me anyway, is the problem. But in fact, there often is such a difference that I actually haven't brought in yet, but I'm going to bring in now. Namely, something I'm going to call temporal contiguity. <laughs> now, what I mean by that is that the emergent or composite identity of a human 
of human A is often temporally contiguous. Moments, time cannot be divided into um, uh, smallest possible units of time. No matter how, no matter how small, no matter how narrowly you thin, you slice a thin a, 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 a slice of time, you could get even thinner. Um, so I'm not talking about from distinct moment to moment, but throughout the course of a period of time, even though the matter is constantly being replaced, the emergent human, the emergent or composite identity of a person remains temporally contiguous. It, it remains throughout the duration of that time. There's, uh, there's always temporal connection, connection in time. Um, between human A at one point in time and human A at the very next instant of time, which is in itself not entirely precise because, as I said, there is no distinct unit of time. So given uh, points time, given points in time X and Z, it is very often the case that a human exhibits what I'll call emergent or composite identity. Again, this terminology probably isn't what is used in the field, and I'm open to being um, shown what the best terminology to be used for what I'm describing is. But what I'm arguing here is that even in physicalism, the emergent identity of the composite whole is temporally contiguous from time X to time Z, even if all the matter that makes up the composite is not. The composite itself is so to use the example of um george washington's hatchet if george washington is holding the hatchet and he takes off the axe head and he puts a new axe head on he's replaced the matter that makes up the axe but the composite especially if he could do the swapping in an instant the composite uh it remains the same it's just made up of different constituent parts now some philosophers would go would argue that not even that could plot could be counted as identity but I think it is, and, and I'm not the only person to think so. There are philosophers who think so as well. So what I'm arguing is that given ordinarily, or ordinarily between times X and Z, the emergent identity of the composite whole of a person is temporally contiguous from time X to time Z. And that's what I'm calling emergent or composite identity. And I think that, or at least I have up until um, this episode, thought that that could ground identity between death and resurrection um and i'll explain why but but let me explain why this where this starts to break down when we introduce death we've been talking about time x and time z and assume and we've been talking about a case where human a continues to live between points in time x and z but let's introduce let's call time x death and time Z resurrection, well now there's a third important point in time to consider, and that is dissolution or decomposition. The, 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 fi the finality or completion of the process by which the body decomposes into, into nothing, dirt. And not nothing, but you know, it's, its molecules all decompose and get you know, subsumed into other composites, right? Um, if you die and are buried, your body will, or, or let's just say you die and, and, you're, and you're left exposed, your body will decompose and then some of the molecules of matter that made up your body will end up subsumed into creatures that fed upon your body, like vultures, right? So 
Now, now, so here's the problem. It seems now that contiguity of identity is now broken. That that composite or or emergent identity that I alleged is contiguously temporally contiguous um, <coughs> is broken, at least at the point that the dissolution process is completed. All right. Now this has historically not given me much concern. When I first interviewed my friend Glenn Peoples, also a fellow physicalist, and this would have been 10, 11, 12 years ago, I told him when I interviewed him that this objection about continuity of identity between death and resurrection was not something that I took very seriously. I didn't think it was all that big of a deal. And the reason, and when I've tried to explain to people why, this is what I've typically done. I've I, I used to argue that if human A came back to life moments after death, then even in physicalism, we would intuitively recognize him or her as the same human that died. So the, the human dies, and a few minutes later, comes back to life, is resuscitated. I think most of us would intuit that that is, in fact, the same person who died. Now, some dualists have been unwilling to engage in this thought experiment with me. Um, but those who do have typically agreed. Yeah, they intuit that to be the case. When I've So then what I've done is I've gone on to the next point in my argument, which is that a dualist cannot logically point to any point in time after that point we just talked about, five minutes after death, whatever, after that time and before total dissolution at which identity is lost, and there is no clear point at time uh, in time at which dissolution is completed. What I mean by that is if five minutes after death a person could come back to life and, and still be intuited to be the same person, well, then the same thing, it seems, would happen 10 minutes after death, two hours after death, five days after death. And there's no point in time at which, uh, that isn't arbitrarily chosen, at which somebody could say, suddenly identity is lost. And even as you get to the very end of whatever the dissolution process looks like, there still doesn't seem to be any non-arbitrary point in time at which you say identity is lost. If Let's say you get to the point where all that's left is a skeleton. Um, if that skeleton is then re-enfleshed and you know, brought back to life, many people, I think, would intuit that that's still the same person who died. Um, but what about when that skeleton starts to decompose? I mean, you're eventually going to get to the point where you have something not even recognizably a human body, but at what point before or after that that's not arbitrarily chosen is identity lost? I've yet to hear any reasonable answer to that question. The best they can do is say, yeah, I don't know what point in time it is, but clearly at some point in time dissolution is complete. But my argument has been, and I and you'll see what I think about this argument in a moment, my argument has been that because you can't find any point in time that's not arbitrarily chosen after death at which identity no longer subsists, therefore, I intuit that resurrection would be possible even well beyond whatever one considers to be the end of the dissolution process. That's been the way I've answered this objection in the past. Um, so, in sum, I argued that there is no clear point in time at which emergent identity, again, using emergent identity in the way I've been using it, or composite identity that is temporally contiguous, uh, I've argued that there is no clear non-arbitrary point in time at which emergent identity is lost. 
but I no longer think this. And this is just something I've come to over the past few days. Um, I don't think that, uh, yeah, I do. I no longer am inclined to offer this argument. And, and let me explain why. I want to talk about what physicalists understand to be uh, what we talk about when we talk about bodies and brains and, and the relationship of the mind to the brain. What I'm here calling emergent human identity seems in physicalism to subsist in the brain, not in the rest of the body. See, if human A and human B living at the same time die at the same time and their brains are swapped before they are resuscitated at the same time, I think that if we are trying to think as a physicalist, we would, we would intuit that human A now has B's body and human B has A's body. And the reason I think that that's likely what we would intuit if we try to think like physicalists is because that seems to be what my friend and fellow physicalist Glenn Peoples concedes. Uh, hold on, this, this I wanted to show this. This is a really bad animation. But so, so here you've got human A on the left, human B on the right. You can see human A's body is the black outline of the head and same thing with human B and then there's a brain inside. Now if I swap their brains, I think we intuit that their identity follows, comes along with the brain. So after their brains are swapped, I think we would say that human B has human A's body because the identity of human B consists, subsists in its brain. And so likewise, human A now has human B's body because human A's identity uh, subsists in human A's brain, not his body. Now, again, as I was saying, the reason I think that I can say this is what a physicalist will likely intuit or somebody trying to think like a physicalist is because my friend and fellow physicalist Glenn Peoples writes the following in an article at his website, rightreason.org, called something like Plantinga's Soft Spot. I think the title of the article is Dualism, Plantinga's Soft Spot. So you can check that out. But He's talking about an argument that Alvin Plantinga offers for dualism. And as part of this argument, Plantinga imagines medical science being advanced to such a level where medical professionals have the ability to replace just any part of the body except for the brain. And he says if every one of his body parts were instantaneously vaporized and replaced, his body would no longer exist, but he still will exist. Now, uh, this is... Planting his argument and intuition, but Glenn seems to concede it. He says a physicalist, unlike a dualist, is likely to regard the brain as the center of consciousness. So, of course, if a fully functioning brain survives, the conscious person survives. This is Glenn Peoples writing. My friend, and I'm not criticizing him. I've learned a lot from Glenn in terms of physicalism. He probably more than anybody else has influenced me to become a physicalist. That doesn't mean he's my mentor, like my debate opponents argued a couple of months ago in in South Carolina. Um, but nevertheless, so I'm not I'm not disputing him. I'm, I'm saying okay, I'm going to follow. I, I I think he's probably right in saying that if a functioning brain survives, then even if all the rest of the body is instantaneously replaced, the conscious person nevertheless survived it. Moreover, Glenn goes on to talk in this article, uh, or to say in this article things that lead me to think that if 
that, that we would intuit that if preserved brain matter removed from another body is then integrated into living brain matter, we would intuit that the former is subsumed into the latter. In other words, the person who the person who died, if some piece of that person's brain were inserted into and integrated with a still living person's brain, that brain matter that has been integrated into the living person's brain would become part of that living person's brain. It becomes subsumed into the living person's brain. Um, and the reason I say this is because Glenn goes on to say, and here he's quoting Plantinga, it would also be possible that the dormant half of a functioning brain would be replaced by a different dormant half and control switches from the previous half to the new half and the original half goes dormant at which time it is replaced by another dormant half well now as a result of that hypothetical process both hemispheres will have been replaced by others and yet throughout that process he would serenely continue to exist now glenn takes issue with whether or not it's even plausible that that kind of uh, operation could happen um throughout which somebody would serenely continue to read his comics i think that's what planting says in the quote that glenn reproduces but that objection aside, Glenn says there's, in the process that Plantinga has described, there's always a link, a temporal link, or well, even a physical one, between the brain at any given point in time and the version of the brain immediately prior. So at no point is the whole brain actually replaced. In other words, you've got your two hemispheres, and they're both alive. You take one out, and, and it dies, and then you take a different half brain, and you bring it in here, this half of the brain never died. It was still functioning, albeit in a reduced capacity. Well, the new brain hemisphere is wired into it, so it's subsumed into the whole the, the living brain. Now this half is removed, but this half is still living and functional. And then a new half is brought in, and it gets integrated into, subsumed into the, the composite whole. So both of these hemispheres have been replaced. But throughout the whole process, there was a functioning brain. We've just taken parts out and put parts in throughout the process of which the brain has continued to function. So what this seems to suggest then, it seems to me, and this is intuitive to me, it, 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 uh, it matches what I intuit to likely be the case. It seems then that emergent human identity, as I've been calling it, seems to subsist in the functioning brain and not the brain simpliciter. Simpliciter is a word meaning um, without qualification. So just the brain per se, the brain as it is, period, the matter that constitutes it, cannot be the sole thing in which human identity subsists. It's got to be that brain functioning. In order for what Glenn conceded to be true, that as brain halves are swapped, the, the, a functioning brain is always there. And that, then, is what seems to ground contiguity of identity. But the problem with physicalism is that at or shortly after death, the human brain no longer functions. Indeed, brain death is often treated as death legally, even while on life support. If the brain ceases to function and is indistinguishable from the brain inside of a corpse, in terms of function, neural, neural activity, 
many people treat this as legal death, even if the body itself remains kept alive via life support. So going back to our diagram, at or shortly after death, brain functioning ceases. And so what I've been arguing to be emergent identity, because it subsists in functioning brain and not just brain, is lost. Neither candidate then at the other end of the timeline, at time Z, neither candidate seems to me could possibly be said to be human A resurrected because there is no contiguity of identity because there is no ongoing functioning brain. This is where I'm at now. Um, and I see this now as a much bigger problem than I thought. Uh, in short, in physicalism, what I'm calling temporal contiguity of emergent human identity seems to end with the cessation of brain functioning. And as we've already established, material identity is impossible because the brain, the body is constantly replacing the matter that makes it up. And so remember, back when I told Glenn, I don't think this is much of a problem. Well, now I think it is. Now I think it's a bigger challenge than I thought. That's not to say that I am ready to give up my physicalism because my physicalism is based on my reading of scripture. I think my reading of scripture is far more consistent with uh, the standard principles of grammatical historical uh, hermeneutics than um, the reading of texts that um, drive uh, substance dualism. Um, sorry, what was I saying? Uh, oh yeah. See, I've just lost my train of thought. Anyway, um, so so oh right right right. So I think it's a, I think it's more consistent with grammatical historical exegesis than the readings that drive substance dualism. Um, but I now do see this as a as a as giving me much more pause than I originally thought. And I'm not ready to give up what I take to be the clear and consistent reading of Scripture. Um, but. I am now motivated to work harder to try to find some sort of a solution to the problem than I previously did. That's where I'm at right now. Um, now, I will say before I continue that um, it seems to me one could take all of the physicalist-friendly readings of the biblical data that I do now and yet still become a substance dualist. I could just say that, yes, there is something, some immaterial substance or substances that contribute to me being human, and that does, in fact, continue to exist between death and resurrection. It's just not what any of the texts in Scripture typically cited as support for a soul actually talk about. I could go that route. And indeed, if I'll tell you what, if I were to eventually become persuaded that this objection has no possible solution that's probably where I would fall back to. I would probably fall back to, okay, I still don't think the texts cited in support of substance dualism do in fact support it and don't refer to whatever immaterial substances ground human identity. But nevertheless, I would have to admit that some such kinds of immaterial substances do exist in ground identity. And I would just be left not knowing where I find that in scripture. I could get, I could go there. There's not, that wouldn't be hard for me, I suppose, to, to a hard point for me to reach. So having laid out what I consider to be the problem as best as I can, um, and having explained why I find this to be a bigger challenge than I've previously thought, 
and being motivated to find a solution, but willing to, uh, very willing to accept some sort of substance dualism because I don't have to change what I take to be the right reading of scripture. Um, I now want to propose one solution uh, in the hope of generating conversation, but not the kind of conversation in which the dualists who typically talk to me want to engage in. So, let's turn to the weird stuff. This is where I'm going to get weird. This is why I said buckle up. And I want to reiterate before I proceed, I am not offering this as the path, as the solution I think actually exists to the problem. Um, I'm not teaching you that this is, or even that you should accept that this is a possible solution and use it in defending physicalism or embrace it. None of that. All I'm doing is thinking out loud, having done some of my thinking, uh, formulating some of my thoughts leading up to this, you know, thing. So in the chat, or if people do response videos, if you see, or, or if you see anybody saying that what I am doing is insisting that this is a solution to the problem, you know they are lying. Or they just didn't pay attention to what I'm saying. Because I'm not saying that. I'm not saying this solves a problem. I'm proposing the possibility that this is a possible solution to see what you think. So, let's get weird and introduce time travel. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail on theories of time. I would like to in a future episode, probably with a guest that is more philosophically inclined than I am. Um, but it does seem to me that there are only some theories of time in which time travel is possible. Namely, theories of time in which all times are real. Now, in a B theory of time, which is often synonymous with what's called eternalism, um, all times are real. Past, present, and future. All right? And it's often, in fact, virtually every, or I should say this, every dualist that I've, that I ever remember describing the difference between A theory and B theory of time to me has said that this is true of B theory, but not of A theory. That in an A theory, only the present is real. But that view that only the present is real is just one variation of A theories of time, namely, um... Uh, presentism. But there are other examples of A theory, including, including the growing block theory, in which um, the past and present are real, but the future is not. And there's also another A theory of time called the moving spotlight theory, according to which all time, past, present, and future, are real. If you're curious, the, 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 the difference between moving spotlight and B theory of time would be that although in both theories, past, present, and future are all real, the difference is that in the moving spotlight A theory of time, the present is um, ontologically privileged. There's something about the present moment that makes it genuinely now unlike past and future. And that property, the property of being... Um, objectively now is moving like a spotlight. So if you imagine, imagine, um, uh, uh, imagine a, a, an old movie 
port projector the kind that's got two big reels you know and it's got a it, it's moving tape um it's moving film from one reel to the next and then a light is being shined through the reel and it gets it projects the image uh on a screen well what's happening in that kind of an example is that the past in the movie the present in the movie and the future in the movie are all equally real uh, right at any given point in time in the middle of the movie the past is at the bot is in the bottom or top reel whichever one um is the destination reel the future is in the source reel which is top or bottom which you know whichever one and the present is the current frame whose image is being projected onto the screen by the light emitted through it and as the as the reels spin the frame of the reel that is whose image is being projected onto the screen by the light being emitted through it changes because this because the film is moving down but the but the light is not that's like the moving spotlight theory and in that example in that analogy although past present and future in the movie are all real one moment in that movie is objectively being projected onto the screen at any given point in time by way of analogy moving spotlight says um past present and future are all real but the present has an objectively nowness to it an objective nowness to it so regardless though the point is is that it seems to me time travel would be possible in either b theory or moving spotlight theory of time because in both of those examples past present future are all real now what do i mean by that well i want you to think about time and this is i think i don't think i'm doing anything particularly novel here um think of time like as if it's the fourth dimension. So, you know, in a in, in a cube, not like the one you're seeing on your you're seeing on your screen right now, but in an ordinary cube, you've got width, length, and height. Right. So you've got three dimensions that together make for three dimensional space. Think of the think of time as the fourth dimension. So look at the image on your screen. The cube, uh, or any particular slice vertical slice of the cube represents a point in time and the one that's highlighted on the screen right now is the point of time that is now and its two-dimensional surface represents three dimension the three-dimensional world as it exists right now and any slice to the left of it would represent the state of three-dimensional space at that time and any slice to the right of it would represent the state of three-dimensional space at that time and so time is like a fourth dimension it's it's the that arrow along the bottom of the image from going from left to right and if the world if if reality is like this because of either because either a b theory of time is true or the moving spotlight theory of time is true then it seems to me as if um, time travel is plausible in the same way that spatial travel is plausible. There's no difficulty going from one point in three-dimensional space to another, and if time is another real dimension, and, and, and the past and future are both real, then you should theoretically be able to move from one point in time to another. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, I'll try to unpack it a little bit more. Most physicists... I think everything, everything from this point on is what I think is the case, but I'm open to being corrected. Most physicists seem to me to see space and time as 
interwoven or related to one another. And they refer to what they call not space and time, but space-time. One word. And they think of that space-time as something akin to a fabric. In fact, this is how uh, Einstein explained gravity. See, in, in Newtonian physics, um, gravity is a force pulling down on something, and an object just prevents the force from pushing the object further down, right? If, if you're standing on a, if you're sitting on a chair like I am right now, the chair is preventing the force of gravity from pushing you down. But in, uh, but I think that in in Einstein in Einstein's theory of gravity and, and general relativity, it's not that there's a force pulling down; it's that the dense concentration of a great amount of mass namely the Earth, um, warps space-time in the way that the, the image on the screen is showing. It's, it's as if it's warping space-time like what happens if you put a bowling ball on a mattress. And so anything that is within a certain distance of that mass will be drawn will, will just be drawn into it the way that a marble might if it was close enough to that divot produced by the bowling ball on the mattress. And so it's not so much that a gravity uh, that a force is pulling down as much as it is that a, if if the, is the chair that I'm sitting on is for, is exerting a force up, and thereby preventing me from falling into the divot created in the fabric of space time by the Earth. Um, Einstein's theory. I keep calling him Einstein because I've been watching a. Um, uh, 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 German, I forgot her name, but a German physicist who does a lot of really fascinating videos I've been watching on YouTube, and every time she pronounces Einstein's name, she pronounces it Einstein, because she's German. So I've kind of gotten into the habit of that. But anyway, Einstein's theory of general relativity suggests that gravity results from warping space-time in the way that I just described. Or something like the way I just described. Now, wormholes are speculated by people who some people anyway who embrace this theory um are the wormholes are speculated to possibly link disparate points in the fabric of space-time kind of like the diagram or image that you're seeing on the screen right now if that two-dimensional fabric or plane represents um space-time the fabric of space-time then the fabric and if and if you know, mass in the fabric of space-time warps it, causing gravity, then it's speculated that the fabric of space-time is malleable. It can be folded, and if folded upon itself and connected, like with a wormhole as shown on the screen, um, you, you would create a wormhole through which you could travel, both temporally and spatially. Um, or in other words, wormholes could connect different locations different points in time, or both. So the way I remember this is uh, from a book called A Wrinkle in Time. There's a scene in the book in which, uh, and you can see this in the movie A Wrinkle in Time as well, but I think the diagrams are better for the purposes I'm, or the drawings are better for what I'm doing here today. Imagine you've, you're, you're an ant trying to get from one point, one end of a string to another. If you think only in terms of three dimensions, um, and if the string represents those three dimensions, there's only the the, the one shortest, the, the shortest distance between the two points, the, the point at the beginning of the string and the point at the end of the string, would be to traverse the string. 
And, um, and so if that string represents time, then the only way to get from point A in time to point B in time would be to traverse time, which is how we ordinarily experience time. But in the book, the character goes on to do this and bring the two points of string together, at which point the ant just hops from one point to the next. The two ends of the string are brought together and the ant is able to cross uh, at, at, immediately from one point to the next without traversing the whole duration of time in between. If that string is like the fabric of space-time and the ant is like an object at a point in time at a point in space, then theoretically you could fold um, the fabric of space-time in such a way to bring two points in space-time into proximity with one another, thereby making travel between the two points instantaneous. Now, in popular conceptions, I hope hopefully that helps. I, I understand this is bizarre. I've warned you several times now, but I hope this at least helps you see how um, you know this conception of space-time at least plausibly in some way or, or conceptually, let's say, makes time travel possible. Right? If not, maybe watch it a few more times and see if you get it or, or, or go read A Wrinkle in Time or something like that. But, you know, watch some YouTube videos. But anyway, but here's the thing. In popular conceptions of time travel, the whole human being, including his or her functioning brain, is moved instantaneously from time X to time Z. The, the body and functioning brain traveling between those two points in time don't experience any passage of time. So while everything else in the cosmos continues to experience a passage of time, the body and functioning brain in a person who travels through time in this popular conception of time travel does not. It's instantaneous. So you have, contig uh, you have temporal contiguity, what I talked about earlier. So take, for example, Marty McFly and Doc Brown's DeLorean in Back to the Future. As the DeLorean approaches, I think it was 88 miles per hour. If I'm wrong, then you can revoke my nerd card. Maybe it was 66 miles per hour. But at one of those two speeds, the DeLorean, uh, as it's approaching that speed, begins to uh, become capable of traveling through time. And at the instant that it achieves the velocity at which it can travel through time, it disappears from time X, leaving only flaming um, tire tracks behind. Oh, was it 80? Nerd card secured. So I got it right, Jonathan? It was 88 miles per hour? Somebody look it up and, and, and confirm for me. Um, but anyway, so the time, the, the, the DeLorean and Marty and his functioning brain and, and his body, they all disappear at time X, leaving nothing behind except for flaming tire tracks. And at time Z, it instantly appears with all the, the, the you know, the same vector, the same directional vector as it had when it left, when it disappeared from time X. But Marty and the DeLorean he's driving experience no passage of time. So going back to our diagram, in a popular conception of time that involves a whole person, body and functioning brain, moving through time, you could have 
Um, uh, you could have this kind of time travel I've described. God could fold space-time and bring two disparate points in time together, like those two ends of the string, and move, he could then move human A instantly, from instantly from the perspective of human A, from time X to time Z, including all of the matter composing his body. Thank you, Susan, for confirming, and Jamie Wright, and Jamie as well. Uh, I've, so far, I get to hold on to my nerd card. I'm happy for that. Um, so in this case, you actually do have that kind of material identity I talked about earlier, just like the ball. Because the matter constituting human A at time X is the very same matter constituting him or her at time Z. Just it was moved from time X to time Z by God when he folded space-time. So in this concept of time travel, you could have material identity. But there's a problem. Bodies don't vanish at death. Like that DeLorean, leaving, you know, whereas the DeLorean, when it vanished, left flaming fire, you know, flaming uh, tire tracks behind. When a body dies, when a person dies, that body doesn't vanish, leaving only clothes behind. Right? The bodies remain. And they slowly decompose. So, this popular conception of time travel, namely the time travel of matter will not work. Now, it, arguably it could. Um, Peter von Inwagen, or Peter von Inwagen, uh, Peter von Inwagen, to, to, use, to use English Americanized, uh, whatever his name is, whatever nationality his name is, he, if I remember correctly, actually thinks that uh, as a physicalist, he thinks that the reason why, or he, what he, what I think he says is that it's not that the body does in fact remain and decompose, but rather a instantaneously created copy of the body is left behind. I think it's called a simulacrum. All right, um, and that's problematic. So, so allegedly, according to Peter von Inwagen, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, at the moment of death, God sort of, all in the in, all in an instant, imperceptibly to passers-by, to observers, snatches away the body, a human A's body, and replaces it with a uh, replacement body that was never by a uh, human A's to begin with, a simulacrum. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and that's why we continue to see a body left behind. And, and, and that body that he snatched away is what provides contiguity of identity. Um, between death and resurrection. Now, there are problems with this. Uh, hold on, there was another one. Um, Kevin Cochran, I think, is another physicalist, and I think that what he does is something very similar, except he thinks that the body divides into two at the moment of death, the way that, like, a cell divides. And the body left behind is no longer... I mean, it, it's, it's, the, it's one of the two that resulted from its division... But the other one is snatched away by God and taken into the future. But either of these seem to me to pose a problem. A couple of problems. One is that it seems to make God a deceiver. You know, there, we have every reason to think that the body that remains when a person dies is the body of the person who died. God would be deceiving us if he snatched away 
the body at death and replaced it with a clone or with a mito you know like a like a, a cell divide like the way a cell divides a, a second body reproduced that way um either either way we, we would that would seem to be him deceiving us into thinking that the body is still there when in fact it's not and i think that's problematic also problematic is that where where do invagen and cochran think that god puts the original body after he replaces it with a simulacrum does god is there some other dimension in which physical material things like bodies can can remain i mean I, I, these are just two examples i think of off the top of my head there may be others but either way it seems to me that this is a problem this is this is this is not uh, gonna work the peter von edwagen's and cochran's solutions to the problem but they are far better philosophers than i am so who knows but this is where i'm at personally and for the record, I don't think Glenn Peoples thinks that von Invagen's or Cochrane's approaches solve them. In fact, he, when he described Invagen's to me, I think he used the word perversely to describe the, what it is that von Invagen thinks. So I think that I think Glenn would agree with me. Time will tell if he watches this. But there's another kind of time travel in popular depictions thereof, and that's what I'm going to call time travel of mind or mental time travel in these depictions of time travel only the mind or consciousness is moved temporally instantaneously from time x to time z a person's entire body all of the matter that made up a person's body in this view remains behind at the temporal origin of the travel and then when the mind immediately appears at the destination of temporal travel it takes over or inhabits or subsists in whatever you want to put however you want to put it the body at the destination that would be so this is a kind of mental time travel now you may think that you um have never heard of this kind of time travel in popular art you know science fiction but you very it's, I think there's a decent chance, not necessarily a 50% chance or more, but I think there's a decent chance you actually have. One example is in a show I used to watch as a kid. Um, it, st it starred Scott Bakula, who, by the way, did a, had a, uh, a role in this, the series Chuck much more recently, and I really enjoyed his participation in that series. It was awesome. But anyway, in this series uh, starring... Um, Scott Bakula, uh, the, the, the series is called Quantum Leap. Go check it out, because what you'll see is that in that series, a physicist tries to time travel, but what ends up happening is that his mind ends up inhabiting different people's bodies at different points in space-time. Past and, well, at various points in the past. So here, for example, is a scene from an episode in which Scott Bakula, the person in our foreground facing the mirror, we're seeing him because the make the, the producers of the show are trying to depict that this is Scott Bakula in the body. But what Scott Bakula's character is seeing in the mirror is this sports at this athlete who obviously looks nothing like Scott Bakula.
Scott Bakula's character is seeing himself, or rather seeing this body that he inhabits in the mirror, and it's not his own body, and it's not even his own brain, but it is his consciousness, his mind. So here's one example of, t of mental time travel in popular art. Arguably, this wouldn't qualify, though. And the reason I say that is because I don't remember. And yes, Jonathan, sometimes Scott Bakula's character even ends up in women's bodies. Um, anyway, the reason why this might not qualify is because I don't remember enough detail and, and couldn't somehow watch the first episode to remember whether they ever actually state that what's happening is his consciousness is inhabiting these other bodies. And the reason why I, I leave that as a bit of an open question is because I don't think that Scott Bakula's character's body gets left behind. Now, those of you who remember the show, Jonathan, Jamie, and chat, if you remember Scott Bakula's character's body being left behind while Scott Bakula's character's mind is traveling through time, let me know, but I don't remember. And that's why I say this is arguably an open question. But there is another example that is definitively mental time travel. And that's The Butterfly Effect, starring Ashton Kutcher. In The Butterfly Effect, a man discovers how to time travel mentally and have his consciousness inhabit his younger self's body. Here's, uh, uh, I, I did say Ashton Kutcher, right? Yeah, so Ashton Kutcher is the star of The Butterfly Effect, and I've put a clip here together to show, to try to, to depict the, temp, the mental time travel itself. Here's how the movie depicts it. Um, you might not be able to hear, well, uh, the main thing is the visual, but if you hear it too, great. It was cold, so I wanted to wear my clothes. But Mr. Miller took my shirt off. So you see what's happened there. Um, Ashton Kutcher's character is... Um, He's found out a way to trigger his mind to operate in such a way that he can go back to the... My his his he can he can time travel mentally back to his human his child self his child body and that's what and he's now looking out of it there. Um, the adult Ashton Kutcher character's body is now inert and inanimate. I mean, just motionless where he was then sitting. In fact, uh, Ashton Kutcher's, Kutcher's character never has any memories of these periods of time in his past. And the reason why is because while his adult mind is back in time into his earlier body, um, his mind from that time has gone dormant and isn't there anymore. And then it takes over again when his adult mind returns to his future self. But the point of all of this is just to say that this is another example and it isn't questionable, like the first example I gave, where um, mind or consciousness travels through time without the accompanying, uh, without the body in which it ordinarily subsists. So let's apply this. And and before you know, you duelists triumphantly think, "Oh, well, <laughs> Chris's theory is so full of holes." Well, hold on, I'm not done yet. All right. So let's go back to our 
chart here. We've got time X, which is death. Between then and time Y, the body decomposes. And then at some point thereafter, time Z, um, there's what is purported to be a resurrection. If mental time travel, the likes of the butterfly effect, is plausible, then God could fold space-time, just like we talked about earlier, and bring two disparate points in time together and move the consci consciousness of human A instantly from time X to time Z. And you wouldn't have material identity in this case, but you would have what I'm calling mental identity. The consciousness of a human A at time X just is his or her consciousness at time Z, having been supernaturally moved through time from points X, point X to point Z by God. That contiguous, because, because the consciousness experiences no passage of time between X and Z, and isn't sort of floating out somewhere in the universe, it's instantaneous because space-time is brought together so the consciousness is instantaneously moved there's nowhere it has to subsist it's there it doesn't it, it's it's not um unreal it actually does instantaneously go from points x to z and thereby uh grounds continuity of identity this is the gist of my proposed defeater but again if you're a dualist and you're watching this and you're triumphantly thinking, oh, well, well, hold on, because I acknowledge that it's not enough to just offer the gist of my proposed defeater, because they're, uh, they're uh, sorry, I don't, I've just lost my train of thought again. Um, wait to push back on the gist of my proposed defeater, or, or don't treat what I've just offered as my proposed defeater, because I'm not done. And it's because I recognize that thoughtful dualists are sure to push back on what I've just proposed, and here's why. This kind of time travel, I contend, seems intuitively possible. Logically, if not metaphysically. What I mean by that is, there would be, but the butterfly effect, quantum leap, and any other popular art in which mental time travel is depicted would not be successful if it struck us as absolutely impossible, implausible, absurd, nonsense, etc. It strikes us as conceptually possible, e logically possible, even if not metaphysically. And I think a dualist can agree, and probably should, except I think they would argue that it might not be logically possible in physicalism. In which case, the intuitive... Uh, sorry, it may not be logically possible in physicalism. In other words, yeah, they may intuit that this kind of mental time travel is possible logically and conclude that it's not logically possible in physicalism, in which case I think they could argue that the intuition may further support dualism because it would be the substantial soul doing the time traveling, not a physical consciousness. And I think that's good pushback. Um... You see, it seems, to me anyway, logically impossible to move, whether temporally or spatially, a property of a material object independent of the object itself. That seems logically impossible to me. What sense would it even make to speak of moving a door's opacity or solidity, 
without moving the door itself. A door's opacity refers to the degree to which it is opaque, cannot be seen through. A door's solidity is the degree to which it is solid rather than soft and, and, and liquid or whatever. So the door itself exhibits a variety of these kinds of properties, but what would it even make what what sense would it even make to talk about moving the door's opacity or solidity? It would it wouldn't make any sense at all. It would be it would be gibberish, gobbledygook. And so this is why I say it does seem logically impossible to move a property of a material object independent of the object itself. Um, it seems that for the for the solution I'm proposing to work, in order to solve physicalism's problem of identity, it would require that the mind is concretely distinct from the brain. That you can point to two physically distinct, two distinct physical things, and one of them would be the brain, and the other of them would be the mind, whatever, or, or at least would be that in which the mind subsists. As it turns out, it's possible that the brain's electromagnetic field might make that possible. This is going to get still more weird, but it's but I've been surprised in recent days to learn that there are a number of uh, neuroscientists who don't think it's all that weird. This is a picture in the bottom right corner of John Joe McFadden. He is a scientist, or uh, yeah, he's a scientist, and he, and he writes in an article in 2020, I think it was, that every time a neuron fires, along with the matter-based signal that travels down its wire-like nerve fiber, it also that is the neuron, projects a tiny electromagnetic pulse, or EM pulse, into the surrounding space. And these pulses flow into each other to generate a kind of pool of electromagnetic energy that's called an electromagnetic field. Now, I didn't know this until very, very recently. I knew that signals, that information is transmitted through the connection of neurons, through the neural network in the brain from neuron to neuron. And by the way, that's fascinating regardless of what I'm trying to accomplish in this video. I would if I would highly encourage you to go watch some videos on YouTube that animate how um, signals travel through the network of neurons that comprise the brain. It's absolutely fascinating. But what I didn't know is that as these electromagnetic signals are transmitted from neuron to neuron, it's also emitting electromagnetic energy. And that electromagnetic energy is not confined to the neuron that originated it. Neither does it remain distinct. The energy emitted whenever each neuron fires um, pools together to form a, a distinct unity called a field, an electromagnetic field. He goes on to write, the information encoded by the million discrete bits of information in a million scattered neurons is physically uni unified within a single brain electromagnetic field. And he posits that it is in that unified single electromagnetic field in which consciousness subsists. Now he goes on to say, locating consciousness in a brain's electromagnetic field might seem bizarre, 
But he rhetorically asks, is it any more bizarre than believing that awareness resides in matter? And of course not. However bizarre one thinks it is that consciousness might reside in matter, it's no more bizarre to propose that it, that it subsists in um, energy, a field, an electromagnetic field. They are both pretty bizarre, <laughs> but, but, the, but, the, but the latter is no more bizarre than the former. Now, he goes on to point out one benefit of, this, of his theory, and, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, namely, it can allow, it, it, can just, it can explain why there's a difference between autonomous activity, autonomous things that our brain does asynchronously, meaning at the same time, like cause your heart to beat regularly, cause you to blink. You know, there's all sorts of things that your brain is constantly regulating all sorts of activity in your in your body simultaneously, asynchronously, meaning at the same time, none of them dependent upon the other. And you're not even aware of it. Um, and by contrast, any one, any one thing that you put your mind to at any point in time, consciously and with awareness, is um, you are only able to do that one thing. Your mind is not able to um, is not able to operate asynchronously. It can only operate synchronously. So you've got this weird this weird dynamic going on where your brain, absent your awareness or without your awareness, is asynchronously doing all sorts of things to make your body live, and at the same time you have one single seat of consciousness that can focus on any one thing at any given time and isn't even aware of all those things I just mentioned. And what John Joe McFadden argues is that this theory that the that conscious awareness subsists in the electromagnetic field of the brain can explain that interesting dynamic. Because what he says is that free will, or what we call free will, is our experience of the brain's conscious electromagnetic information field, that semi-field, C-E-M-I field, acting on neurons to initiate voluntary actions. In other words, it's not just... Do you remember, do you remember me telling you that the difference between reductive and non-reductive physicalism is that in reductive physicalism, the mind arises... Brain states... Changes to brain states affect changes to mind states, but not the other way around. Your mind is nothing more than the um, effect of firing neurons in your brain. And what you perceive to be choices and volition and, and those kinds of things, that's just your experience of the neurons firing mechanistically according to the laws of physics. Non-reductive physicalism, however, is the view that whatever the mind is, Although it is dependent upon the functioning brain for its existence, um, and, and although the firing, the changes to brain state do affect changes of mind state, the reverse is true as well. You can exercise volition in your mind, and that will cause the neurons in your brain to fire differently. That would be uh, non-reductive physicalism. And notice what John Joe McFadden is saying here: that the electromagnetic field if the conscious if consciousness subsists in it it can affect changes to the way the neurons fire and yet at the same time be the product of neurons firing that sounds an awful lot like non-reductive physicalism to me
And he now, to be fair, John Joe McFadden is a materialistic determinist, meaning he uh, he would say that even what you experience as volition is just operating according to the laws of physics. So there would still be a, a an issue to solve there in terms of uh, free will that could ground moral accountability. And I'm not going to try to solve that here. What I do know is something I will explain in a moment. But um, in this article, John Joe McFadden says that typically neuroscientists um, dismiss the brain's electromagnetic field as in any way contributing to consciousness because they see it as purely epiphenomenal. Um, meaning uh, purely the reductive physicalist view. It's merely the product of the neurons firing and that's it. There, It doesn't have a, a it can't in turn, it, there's no reciprocal uh, activity. The, the, the neuron, the, the, well, anyway, I've tried to explain it. Hopefully I've done a good enough job. But what some experiments in 2010 and 2011 by David McCormick and Christoph Koch, or Koch, probably Koch. What, what those experiments seem to have demonstrated is that neurons can indeed be perturbed by weak brain strength electromagnetic fields. In other words, a field the likes of which is produced by neurons can affect neurons. Do you hear that? The field or something... A field, like the kind that is produced by firing neurons, can in turn cause neurons to fire differently. That's fascinating. And again, it sounds to me an awful lot like non-reductive physicalism. Now, here's what I said a couple of times now that I would, that I would say. What I've just offered to you is only one among several electromagnetic field theories of consciousness. And I did not know this until a matter of days ago. John Joe McFadden's theory is one that would entail materialistic determinism, but that's not the case with all electromagnetic field theories of consciousness. In these theories, consciousness is identical with some aspect of a physical field. Not necessarily the field itself, but some aspect thereof. And importantly, an electromagnetic field is concretely distinct from the object from which it arises. You can identify, you can discern the field from the matter from which it arises. So here, for example, are the electromagnetic fields of the Earth and of a magnet. The Earth is the blue circle with the green continents on it. The magnet is the U-shaped object with a north and a south pole. Those are the concrete, that's the concrete, those are the concrete ob material objects from which the fields emerge or arise. Or put another way, those are the concrete material objects that produce their electromagnetic fields. The fields are, they refer to the fact that at every point within the field, there is an electromagnetic force exerted. And that force has like I think it has direction to it, and that's why these field lines are curved and have directions on them. In other words, if you pick a point at any point in an electromagnetic generator's field, you will not be you won't be touching or near necessarily the matter that produces the field, but there will be a force exerted 
upon you if you are electromagnetically reactive. So, in the same way then, a brain's electromagnetic field is discernible from, distinguishable from, the brain itself. And what it would mean is that the firing of the brain, the firing of the neurons in the brain, each emit one of these pulses that pool together to form a field at any point in which a force is exerted, an electromagnetic force. But here's the question. Can such a field move independent of the object generating it? Remember, I conceded earlier that it makes no sense to speak of a property of an object moving independently of it. What sense would it make to talk about moving the opacity of a door? It, it just It's completely nonsensical. Um, the question then is, can that be the case with a field? Can a field move independent of the object generating it? And I am proposing that electromagnetic, electromagnetic radiation, like visible and invisible light, suggests that a field can plausibly move independent of this object generating it. Allow me to explain. Mechanical waves, like water and sound waves, travel through a medium or substrate. So if you think about the waves that crash against the shore at the beach, what's happening is you've got matter and the matter is kind of moving up and down in, in a particular pattern and it makes a wave. That matter isn't always actually moving in, in a directional line. In fact, arguably the wave itself isn't either, but what's happening is that matter is moving up and down at different points in space and it's producing a wave. You cannot have, and the same is true of sound, right? That's why there's no sound in space, I think, because um, the way sound works is that the molecules in air or in some other substrate vibrate just like the they move side to side or up and down the same way that the molecules in water do in water waves. So water and sound waves are examples of waves that do require, they are, in, they are inseparable from the matter uh, that in which the waves are traveling. You can't move them. But I think that electromagnetic waves are different. Electromagnetic waves do not require a medium or substrate, and they can travel through even the vacuum of space. Remember what I just mentioned uh, as an example of electromagnetic radiation, sunlight. You, what's happening with sunlight is that electromagnetic waves are being emitted from the sun and travel what is it, six light minutes? Millions and millions and millions of miles from the sun to us and then causes an effect. Now, electromagnetic waves are not identical to, or sorry, let me put it another way, electromagnetic radiation isn't identical to an electromagnetic field, but there is an important relationship. The way that, now I'm getting more and more out of my depth, but I'm gonna keep plowing ahead. The way that a, something that generates an uh, the, uh, electromagnetic radiation works um, would be something like, take for example an antenna. What happens is that electrons are caused to move back and forth in the substrate, the, the conductive material that the electric electrical signal is in. It's moved back and forth, the electrons are. And moving those electrons back, back and forth 
causes the electric field to oscillate, the electromagnetic field to oscillate. And as the electro electromagnetic field oscillates like this, what happens is that electromagnetic energy is radiated away from the oscillating field. And there's even a word for it, detachment. The, electro, the, the electromagnetic waves uh, or radiation detaches from the oscillating field that generates it. Now, what's interesting is that the way that an uh, electro, the way that a receiver will receive a transmission and make sense of it, is that the process I just described is kind of played back in reverse. So remember, I said that with the transmitter. Electrons are moved side to side, which causes the electric, electromagnetic field to oscillate back and forth, which causes radiation, electromagnetic waves to be emitted. Well, play that back in reverse, and you have a receiver. The waves are, are uh, the, the, the material that makes up the receiver encounters the, the, the electromagnetic wave that's moving toward it, and the, uh, the, the movement of the wave side to side causes the electric the electromagnetic field to move side to side to oscillate on the receiver and that causes its matter its electrons to move and and so what happens is that the information encoded in those electromagnetic waves is transferred into matter by moving the electrons by causing them to oscillate and now that you've now that you can detect the motion of those electrons uh, the matter you can then decode that information. <clears throat> this is fascinating to me, and I'm sure I'm not doing justice to it. But the point of this is to say that electromagnetic energy does seem to be able to move even apart from a substrate. So to put some flesh on the bones of that gist of the solution that I offered earlier, I'm proposing perhaps consciousness is seated in the brain's electromagnetic field rather than in the neurons whose functioning generates it. The field's electromagnetic energy, though distinct from matter, is nevertheless physical. Right? So it may be immaterial, but it is physical. And that's why I went back and I changed those earlier slides. Instead of distinguishing between material and immaterial substances, I'm distinguishing between physical and non-physical. Because physical substances include both matter and energy. So even though the field's electromagnetic energy is immaterial, it is physical. And therefore is consistent with physicalism. And what I'm proposing is that God might move the brain's electromagnetic field from the time of death to the time of resurrection. And it would look a little bit something like this. As the moment of death approaches, neural activity decreases and the field generated by that neural activity diminishes. I'm saying approaching death. So I'm talking about it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And you'd be able to detect both of those two phenomena using instrumentation. You would be able to detect the decreasing activity of the neurons and you would be able to detect the diminishing electromagnetic field. And then at an instant before death, a point so close in time to the point of death that there is no possible way to discern the difference between those two points in time using, our, using technology, an instant before death, that electromagnetic field 
vanishes entirely and neural activity ceases. From the perspective of, from our perspective in time, that is what happens. When the brain ceases to function, we simultaneously detect both a cessation of the neural activity and the disappearance of the electromagnetic field it generates. But if the field itself is moved, even however small the field is, however insignificant it is, because the neural activity has been diminishing and diminishing and diminishing, all that has to happen for identity to continue, it seems to me, is for that field in which consciousness subsists to be moved from one point in time to another by God, by folding space-time, at imperceptibly close point in time to the cessation of neural activity. So from our perspective, it would seem as if both of those two things happen at the same point in time, but in reality, the field itself, the energy that makes up that field itself, would be instantaneously traveled forward in time by God. And then at the time of resurrection, the faint electromagnetic field of the dying brain uh, reappears. From our perspective, it would appear to reappear, right? It disappeared at the time of death. Now it's reappearing at the time of resurrection. But the field itself has experienced no passage of time because what God has done is folded space-time and brought two points in space-time uh, adjacent to one another and just moved the magnetic field over. Um, and what happens is that field then affects the dormant neurons, which begin to fire and then replenish the field. Because remember, there appear to be experiments that indicate that, yes, a brain-strength electromagnetic field can perturb firing neurons. That would be consistent with non-reductive physicalism. Um, and in the same way that, the that prior to death, the neurons produced the field, but the field in turn uh, affected the neurons, so too, when the field reappears at point in time Z, at the point of time of resurrection... Um, and and, it's, and it is re-embodied in a once-again living body, it then affects the dormant neurons, they begin to fire, and everything comes back. The field had never disappeared entirely. It was temporally contiguous because it transferred immediately uh, without a passage of time from time X to time Z. Um, no matter how diminished the field was, and then the information encoded in that faint electromagnetic field when it reappears is then um, re-emitted into the firing neurons and they start to fire and replenish the field and the person comes back to life. Continuity of identity. So uh, I mean applying that back to our diagram again. If we have time X is death, time Y is the completion of the dissolution of the body and time Z is resurrection. What I'm proposing is that God could fold space-time and bring two disparate points in time together and move not the whole body and functioning brain, but rather move the brain's electromagnetic field of human A instantly from time X to time Z. And you won't have material identity, but you would have what I'm calling mental identity or conscious identity, consciousness identity. In other words, and, and what I would say is this, the consciousness of human A at time X just is his or her consciousness at time Z having been moved through time by God by means of moving the, con the, the field in which that consciousness subsists. This seems to be one plausible accounting of mental time travel. And this is uh, the gist that I offered earlier with more flesh 
you know, having been fleshed out with more detail, um, this is the proposed solution that I am commending to you for consideration, especially you substance dualists who have up until this point been um, in the, convinced that there is no possible solution in physicalism. And perhaps there's not, but this is the solution I'm commending to you for consideration. And if you find holes in this, I would still want to discuss the gist that I offered earlier, but I know that it's not enough to just offer the gist, and that's why I've offered some flesh on the bones. And just to be clear, again, going back to what I said earlier about the problem of evil, perhaps there are other plausible accountings of mental time travel yet to be imagined. I've offered one, namely the electromagnetic field, but you know what? It's not just... Um, in a so photons are particles that have no mass and that represent um, electromagnetic radiation. And there's but there's also gravitational fields, and some people posit that perhaps a gravitational field uh, or, or what what exert what is responsible for gravitational fields is something called a gravitron. So perhaps. There's another plausible accounting of mental time travel. Perhaps there's such a thing as conscious energy. I don't know what that would... But an energy that is not electromagnetic and is not gravitational, but is whatever consciousness consists of. And perhaps that field can be moved through time, just like other forms of energy. Just throwing it out there as a possibility. So I've offered one plausible, what seems to me to be a plausible accounting of mental time travel. Perhaps there are other plausible, account uh, plausible accountings of mental time travel yet to be imagined. And if mental time travel plausibly solves the problem, then other, less fanciful solutions um, may exist. So this is not what I'm proposing to be the actual solution. I don't actually think that God um, uh, moves the electromagnetic field of the brain from point from time X to time Z, and that's how continuity of identity is grounded. I'm not actually proposing that. But it does seem to me to be plausible. And if that's one plausible accounting of mental time travel, there may be others. And if any mental if any if any account of mental time travel is plausible and solves the problem, then it seems to me that other less fanciful solutions may exist, and I have no idea what those are. So this, so this is what I'm commending to you, my dualist brothers and sisters in Christ. Feel free to pick all sorts of holes in it. I want you to. Um, as I said, there's it's not that big of a deal for me to just accept some form of substance dualism, but think the Bible nowhere talks about it. Fine. Um. But I'm not yet ready to concede that the problem is unsolvable. And so I'd like to see some interaction on this. But as I said, the dualists that have tried to interact with me on this have not, from my perspective, really been in any sort of truth-finding mission with me. All they've done is tried to tell me why I'm wrong, and I'm just not interested in that. So feel free to leave comments. Uh, feel free to write emails. My email address is on the screen. Feel free to send me Facebook messages, whatever. I will deeply and carefully consider those and see if my theory holds up or my proposed solution holds up. Um, but I probably will not, at least for the time being, engage in conversation unless I get the impression that the dualist actually is interested in a truth-finding mission with me. So that's what I commended into your hands um, today. Now, before I bid you adieu, I do just want to remind you of what I said at the very, very, very beginning as I go back all the way through all these slides. Two weeks from today, May, Monday, May 17th, 
Um, Lord willing, the next episode of The Apologetics will be my interview with John Peckham on the attributes of God. And then two weeks after that, Lord willing, will be my interview with Stephen Meyer on his book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. So I hope that you will come back in two weeks' time and then four weeks' time for those and be praying that both of those things would happen because they're both interviews I'm excited to conduct and air. So, um, that's what I've got. And I hope it's been helpful. Here's what I hope to have accomplished. Number one, I hope to have demonstrated that I'm trying to take the problem seriously. Number two, I hope I've demonstrated that I at least understand the problem enough to articulate it decently. Um, and number three, I hope to have offered a solution that I don't actually think is true, but is plausible. And that solution is mental time travel. And I've I hope to have further offered a fleshing out of that gist of a solution in the form of the movement of an electromagnetic field produced by the brain instantaneously through time by God. And if that is plausible, then what I have succeeded in doing is opening the door to other possible accountings of mental time travel. And more importantly for this conversation, other less fanciful solutions to the original problem that don't involve any sort of time travel. But I suspect that there are some glaring holes somewhere in what I've put together. And I look forward to hearing from you uh, regarding what those holes might be. I've enjoyed thinking through this and I will continue to be thinking through it. Um, and I hope that you have found this show enjoyable, even if weird and helpful, even if weird. Um, and maybe you'll continue to think through the issue as I do. Thanks for joining me, whether you've watched live or whether you're watching this after the show finished airing. Um, and I hope to see you next time. Until then. I've been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...